Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. Uh, we've got a fantastic podcast uh, online today. I'm very privileged to be speaking to Steve Trafton, whom I'm sure many of you have heard about from a variety of uh, different expedition and adventure pursuits, uh, mountaineering, uh, Arctic exploration, and even a little foray into absolute speed uh, with a land speed record on the Bonneville Salt Flats. Uh, Stephen's been in the expedition game for many years, and uh, without further ado, let's welcome him to the podcast. Stephen, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Well, um, so I first came across uh, you know, your, your uh, history and your uh, expedition resume through researching and preparation for the Franklin Project that we undertook this summer through Adventure Science. Uh, you've preceded us by several decades, um, and your first project up there was uh, 1977. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Well, there's many uh, rungs on the ladder that I would say have to be climbed before someone decides that they're going to go to King William Island in the winter, no less, and attempt to follow a route that didn't play out for the originators very well, uh, you know, for their, for an expedition idea. So I'd love to get, uh, your background. How did you get in, interested in adventure and expeditioning? And then ultimately what led you to Franklin? Sure. Well, this all started way back, uh, when I was uh, a youngster and, uh, climbed my first mountain, um, back in the uh, 50s, and, it, and that was almost accidental. It was uh, on a family hike over in the uh, Olympic Mountains, and we hiked up to this beautiful scenic lake um, with mountains all around it, uh, a lake called Boulder Lake, and I saw rising above that lake, of course, Boulder Mountain, Boulder Peak, over in the Olympics. And I thought, boy, I wonder what the view is like from oh, a couple hundred feet higher. And so I sort of wandered around the lake and and uh, and uh, went on up a bit higher and the view was better and better and and uh, went a little higher and the view was better and better. And finally I was, oh, five or 600 feet above the lake level. And then I looked up and I saw this ridge, uh, which was just above me and it led up to the summit and I could see the way to it. And uh, at the time, I believe I was uh, 12 years old. Okay. And I thought I'd... At the lake at this point? Yeah. uh, When we went on the um, hike, I was about 12 years old and went with my family. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were all down enjoying a picnic along the side of the lake when I decided to see what it was like a bit higher up on the mountain. Um, and it was really out of a curiosity of what would it look like from up there. Mm. And as I got higher and higher, uh, as I said, I uh, saw this ridge rising above me and going on up to the to the summit. And so I kept going higher and getting toward that ridge. And then I got really curious about what was on the other side of that ridge. And so I made it up to the ridge and looked over the other side and the Olympic mountain range is all spread out before me, and it was just unbelievable to me. It was such a rush, such a high. At the same time, kind of frightening, a little frightening in that being on the edge of this this ridge line on a mountain for the first time. Um, 
but that really just encouraged me to go just a bit further. I got to see if I can just press just a little further. So I started <laughs> off. I started off along the ridge, and after 15 or 20 minutes or so, I was on top of the mountain, on top of Boulder Peak, and I could look down on the one side and see Boulder Lake now uh, a thousand feet or more below me, and I could even see where my family was down there picnicking. They had no idea that I'd left. But at any rate, at any rate, I could see them, and I could look off the other side, and I could look out over the Olympic Mountain Range, and I just thought this was this was just the greatest thing that that ever was. It was a real rush, and a piece of it was just this desire to want to know what's on the other side of that ridge. So as I made my way down, and I recount this in a book I recently wrote, I. I I, the family, of course, got bigger, and then they could see me coming down, and then I, it occurred to me that I was going to be in a lot of trouble when I got down to that, <laughs> got down to that lake. So I got down to the lake, and, of course, I was met by my parents who were, I suppose, relieved, but on the other hand, uh, were also very angry. And, and of course, I promised, uh, as I said, with my fingers crossed behind my back, more or less, that I would never do anything like that again. And uh, on the way up that mountain, I had picked a Indian paintbrush. That, okay. would be, that would be a terrible thing today, but back then it wasn't so terrible. And I brought it down and I gave it to my mother. You know, uh, even though the parents were upset, I'm sure uh, your mom must have been pleased to get a nice, uh, well, a beautiful flower yeah. from you. Well, <laughs> it all, as it, obviously it all worked out okay. And, and that led to the start of my climbing career, and uh, and I only retell that story because the it was really the the beginning of this the seed of 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 this quest for as I call it the edge, and mountaineering was the next big phase of that, and as I went through my mountaineering. Uh, history, mountaineering, and becoming a, a accomplished mountaineer, not certainly not the world's best mountaineer, but at least an accomplished mountaineer, uh, led to a sub-career in mountain rescue. Okay. And my climbing partner and I uh, basically oversaw and managed um much of the mountain rescue activity in the Northwest uh, during the 70s. And as we got more and more proficient in the mountains and cold weather and rescue techniques, it came time to decide, are we going to join the throng of people that were headed for the Himalaya? Were we going to try to link up with an Everest expedition, for example? or a K2 expedition, or something like that. Right. And in our minds, um, the answer uh, was no. And the reason that we weren't is, basically, we both worked for a living. And to get the time off necessary to do it, and to raise the money to be able to do it, we really weren't in a position to do it. Uh, in, an, in addition to that, um, we noted that a, most of the major peaks had been climbed by that point. Now, certainly not all, but but most of the of the big um, goal 
had been reached right. there. And the success ratio for each climber was relatively low. In other words, you might have, you know, 20, 20, say, people on an expedition and three or four people make it to the top. Right. And so, so really, A, what were the odds of financing it? What were the odds of actually summiting? And what were the odds of summiting on a new peak by a, um, a, a really interesting route? And um, we came to the conclusion that they were just so small that I started thinking about, okay, where is where is a place that nobody is going? Literally, almost nobody. And I came up with the answer of the Arctic. That um, uh, while there had been some activity and there had been a few expeditions, very, very few, spread out over a large area, the whole polar area. And so I thought, boy, there is a field day waiting to happen. And so what we needed to do now was to adjust our expertise to be inclusive of uh, uh, mountaineering in cold weather. Right. Um, So in preparation for that, uh, we thought, okay, where can we go extremely cold, but also kind of interesting? I mean, there's got to be some something there uh, in addition to just the challenge of cold. And the Franklin expedition crossed my desk, and I thought, you know, I wonder if we go to King William Island and we sort of, you know, see what we can find relative to the Franklin expedition. Uh, but rather than going in oh, July or August or maybe even June, uh, a more sort of natural time for people to go. I thought, why don't we go in the winter? Let's go in the winter and see if we can make this tough. And so we prepared and uh, decided that we would fly to Joa Haven and then uh, manhaul our sled around the south coast to King William Island and try to end up near... Uh, Washington Bay, which is, okay. which is by the as you know, just short of Terror Bay, where the terror was recently found. Yeah. Now, one one question for you though: Was the goal to retrace uh, the route and uh, experience it uh, in tough conditions, or was the goal to actually find uh, Franklin era artifacts, relics, campsites, whatever may be up there? Uh, the goal was not, no, the goal wasn't to find Franklin era relics and so forth. The goal was to try to simulate or emulate what it was like for those guys up there in the eight, late 1840s um, uh, during the winter period or early spring period. Just what was it like? Uh, right, and right. and we and I noted that very few, if any, people after the original Franklin search expeditions had ever done anything like that. Um, probably because there was nothing to find. There was a little, you know, skiff to snow on things, and and so it'd be very difficult to actually find something. But I thought the experience and coming as close as we could to experiencing what those guys experienced in terms of travel would be something fascinating and it would definitely be at the edge with the expected temperatures of you know a a consistent 
35 below zero and a wind chill of, uh, you know, 56 or 60 or 70 below. Um, And that that would give us some fabulous um, uh, information relative to what it's like to be there and to survive, what it takes to survive in that. So how did how did that project go for you? It was a team of three, right? Yes, it was uh, my climbing partner and uh, another friend of ours from Mountain Rescue, and and we, uh, as I said, we flew up to Joe Haven. We assembled our sleds and struck out across the sea ice. And the first thing we found was it was cold. It was really cold. I think the, just the outside temperature was something like minus 36 or 37 degrees. Uh, but there was a right. wind blowing, blowing right in our face the whole time. Right. And then uh, we did find a, a couple of things that were sort of obviously fascinating. Um, one is that it was um, certainly possible to work in weather like that. Uh, and pulling the sled is hard enough work that that staying warm wasn't particularly uh, difficult. But we did find that after a, a period of time working, say an hour or so or whatever it might be, that basically you could tell that your food energy levels were just going to zero. In other words, you'd be pulling the sled, you'd be marching along, and within a period of 15 or 20 minutes, all of a sudden you'd be cold, whereas you weren't before. and You'd just run out of heat supply and food energy, and so we'd stop, and we had a craving for fatty foods, like, uh, say, a cup of soup with a quarter cube of butter melted into it. And, and you'd, you'd have to replenish that caloric supply. We ended up with a daily caloric level of about 5,000 calories a day. To okay, and how, how far were you dragging your sleds each day? And how much do you think your sleds weighed when you set out from uh, Joe Haven? Well, our first sled was, <laughs> was not a very efficient um, Arctic sled. We had about 250, 300 pounds on it, and it was top-heavy, so it'd tip over occasionally. Um, uh, and, but, so we we felt we were lucky to make say ten to fifteen miles a day. It was and agonizingly slow. Oh, very slow. Yeah. Yep. It was very slow. Um, we also found, um, for example, some sort of curious things, and people ask often, you know, how did you go to the bathroom up there? <laughs> well, <laughs> one answer I guess would be very quickly. Um, but, but they're just day to day things like, uh, uh, hygiene, uh, basically washing your hands, uh, keeping your, cl- trying to keep your clothes at least mm, relatively clean as you go along day after day after day. And of course, sleeping bags. And so we found an awful lot about, uh, you know, the, your basic sort of perspiration at night would freeze in the down of the bags and after a few days you had basically a bag full of ice when you would crawl crawl into it at night and then of course your body heat would melt the ice and so you'd be in kind of a damp bag all night long so not not the best with down right you've got to keep down so you lose your your insulating properties as the expedition went on it sounds like yeah. Oh, yeah. It got really miserable along about after a week and uh, past a week. Uh, it, it was it was very miserable. So 
But that was a, one of the reasons we went there. We wanted to learn what are the survival techniques and, and what are the issues in extreme cold that you have to deal with. And what are the, what are the issues in the Arctic? Because back then, you know, we didn't have GPS. And, and the compass was not useful for anything. Yeah, so, that's what we found. Compass does not work up there. It's GPS or, or nothing. And it's basically a featureless landscape. Yes, it is. Uh, and so now fortunately, we obviously we picked a route where all we had to do was keep keep King William Island on our right. <laughs> that's all we had to do. But that's harder than one might think when you're going in and out of bays like Douglas Bay. If you remember Douglas Bay along the south coast of King William Island, just before Gladman Point and Washington Bay, there's a, okay. a, a bay that goes in with a small island in the back. And so we had heard about some uh, Inuit uh, uh, tent rings uh, oh, okay. way, way back in a little islet back there. And we thought there might be some Franklin stuff back there if they had gone inland, uh, or not, not even inland really, but just around this bay along the back side of it. Well, we got back in there. And the wind came up, and the temperature dropped, and pretty soon we had a wind chill of greater than 100, greater than 70 below zero. And we discovered then too, with the blowing wind, we had a ground blizzard. So our tracks were all gone. Tracks were gone. And mm -hmm. our ca our our camp was way out at Tolak Point. And so the question got to be: Whoa, You had left your camp just to do a, a day trip yes. to this island. Lord, you yes. weren't dragging your sled at that point. Okay. No. So, but you could imagine what it would be like if once you were away from your camp at some distance, and I seemed to me it was uh, eight or ten miles or so. It was a ways. I'm not quite sure how far. I, I, I can't really say now, but it was a, a, a number of miles. And we had to, we, you know, the realization that you have to get back to camp. And at a windshell of 70 below uh, and no tracks to follow, how do you do it? A compass is no good. And so what we came up with was to follow the shoreline of Douglas Bay out to Tolock Point, And then we knew we would be within a couple hundred yards of our tent and hopefully we could see it. But... Um, Following the coastline, as you also know up there, is it's difficult to tell sometimes when you're on the land or you're on the sea ice. There's a difference in sound as you're walking along. That's a, one primary way you could do it because the snow on land sounds different when you walk on it than the snow and ice on the sea when you, when you walk on that. But okay. also along the shoreline, you may recall, there's a tidal crack from the tide going up and down. Yes. So what, that's right. So what we did is we went from this island straight across the sea ice to what we thought was uh, would be the shoreline of Douglas Bay, basically until we stepped in the tidal crack. Then we knew we were at the shore. And so we followed the tidal crack all the way along until we came to Tolak Point. And sure enough, we could barely make out our red tent there in the distance and we made it back to camp. So that was a lesson learned about Arctic navigation without a compass. Right. 
And uh, after that, you started building eight-foot-tall stone cairns like the uh, the old boys did back in the 1800s, right? <laughs> too time-consuming for two or three people, but but that would be <laughs> yeah. that that would certainly be a primary reason why they why they did that, so they were visible for some some distance. But another helpful thing is that since there's a prevailing wind up there, the wind patterns on the sea ice that develop on the sea ice okay. act, as, act as a compass. And so we would use that as a crude compass to uh, give us a primary direction sometimes if we were not in sight of land. And that worked very well. Interesting. And you figured that out while you were up there or was that something you knew before you went? It was something we had to figure out. Yes, right. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, it's just I mean that's that's what's so beautiful about these expeditions. It's if you if you go in with an open mind, uh the amount of, of knowledge you can gain, you know, from having a few near misses perhaps, but really just moving through the landscape with your eyes and ears open, uh it's more than you'll you'll glean from any textbook. Um, you know, it's a close second, I guess, to talking to people who have actually done it, but uh, you learn very quickly. Yeah. Well, when you're basically, I guess, you know, when you're right up against it and you either figure it out or you die, um, you start working out the problem pretty quickly. So, yeah, exactly. So let me let me ask you this then. Um, I'd like to hear how the expedition uh, finished up, but I'd also like to... Um, get a better appreciation of how your understanding and thoughts on the whole Franklin expedition changed because you then went back again, uh, what, 16 years later or so, and uh, did some work in the summer, made some discoveries, uh, different style of expedition. Sure. Uh, well, one of the things that, obviously, that we learned was that uh, in the spring uh in the Arctic and particularly around King William Island, um, pulling a sled is very, very difficult, hard work. We were in top, top condition and and um, basically pretty successful mountaineers and mountain rescue people, and it was tough. And so one conclusion that I uh, reached back then was uh, the Franklin boys were really literally just up against it, that the odds were uh, very long that they would uh, right. ever ever survive. And so we had a, a real appreciation for that. And since we were um, the only sort of modern day people that I know of that uh, dragged a sled across the ice and not even nearly as far as they did, uh, we did about um, 80 or 100 miles. Um, uh, our appreciation for why they died and the fact that they died was um, uh, absolute. There was no question in my mind that there was just no way that either malnourished or tired or mentally um, uh, bogged down people would uh, would die. There was very little chance that they would survive. So that that was something that really um, stayed with us and that, and that we learned uh, from that trip. Yeah. And it's something, you know, we, we went in the summer, but um, once you're on the ground up there, 
it hits you pretty heavily that you are very alone. Um, the odds are long that, you know, if, if you're not well fed, you aren't going to survive up there. If you don't have knowledge of how to move through the terrain in uh, a willingness to adapt, you, you won't survive up there. But just the, the struggle that these men would have faced uh, moving through that landscape, um, it's, it's pretty overwhelming when you're actually standing on the landscape itself. Oh, yeah. Now, um, moving on to um, the 1989 expedition, um, after 1977, uh, we embarked on a series of expeditions to northern Ellesmere Island and uh, Baffin Island. And those were mm -hmm. primarily mountaineering expeditions that resulted, uh, that were really very successful and really enjoyable being able to uh, visit mountain ranges that either no one had ever been in before or only just a handful of people had ever been in before and so that basically everywhere you looked and every mountain that we climbed and we climbed a number of them um, was a first ascent and the first time that someone had actually stood on top of these peaks and looked out over the vastness of the Arctic and it was really the high point of our climbing career to have done that. And as we incredible, as we did that on in 1980, we were on one expedition in northern Ellesmere, and when we came back down um, from the um, uh, Victoria and Albert Range, we stopped off at Beachy Island, and we because we wanted to visit the Beachy Island site, and this was in 1980. And that is one of the most, or at least it was then anyway, I presume it still is, but, but one of the most sort of uh, silencing sites that you could imagine with the loneliness of those graves out there at, on Beachy Island and the, and the old mast of the Mary um, that was stuck in the, in, in, the, um, in the gravel there for many many years and the old wow. beacon that the old beacon that was put on top of the big hill up above the campsite um and seeing the um sun dog uh, around mm. that uh, around that beacon uh it's just it was just really mesmerizing so we determined then that we were going to go visit uh king william island again and this time we were going to search for um, Franklin expedition relics. Uh, but first, I had to undertake a number of years of off and on again research and planning and and um, uh, searching references in uh, the original uh, writings of the Franklin search expeditions to try to develop a a map of the north end of King William Island with a probability series spread out over it um, and applying our mountain rescue search techniques to trying to find the summer camp and trying to find the Karen that Schwatka had rebuilt that was one of the Franklin Beacon Karens, drift, so-called drift Karens, right. um, and to visit Irving's grave and that sort of thing that we wanted to do that, and in 1989, we went back up to King William Island with the purpose of finding the Franklin summer camp and some other Franklin relics armed with our own uh, research and um, 
that's the beginning of the next chapter. Let, let me back up for one second because, you know, you, you mentioned that it's, you spent several years researching and developing a, a plan to go up there. Now, for the people listening, uh, it depends on uh, how old you are, but, you know, we didn't have Google then. Uh, everything was, was coming out of the library, um, and it, it, things just were more difficult. It was more difficult to find information, basically, um, and you just had to be a little bit more patient. But, you know, you'd also mentioned that you had to work for a living. And so I'd like to know a little bit about how you balanced uh, your work and play, because, you know, these are big expeditions. Um, they're expensive, and, you know, funding them is always a challenge. It's, it's probably the adventurer's biggest challenge. So I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, your business uh, background and, you know, what, what, where the, was there a crossover point where you found that these expeditions added value to your daily life? Uh, did it help you uh, in, in your uh, career? Or was there a pretty hard cut where these expeditions were you turned the brain off, focused on the project at hand, and didn't worry about what was going on in the office. Yeah, there's a, a lot of good questions there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that's all right. Uh, and I'll I'll try to uh, give you some answers that you can then you can parse, but I can cover all that. Um, when I graduated from college, um, I found myself in need of a summer job. And I graduated from college with a major in zoology. And my specialty was physiology. And I really wanted a career okay. as, a, as a physiologist. And, but it was too late in the year uh, to apply for uh, uh, graduate school. And so I needed a summer job and I needed to earn some money uh, because my folks had basically made it uh, very clear that after the age of 18, I was expected to um, either be in college or have a job and be supporting myself. And so uh, in keeping with that, um, I found a job as a safe deposit clerk in a bank in Seattle, Washington. Okay. And, I, and I intended that to be, that was going to be a summer job that I was going back to graduate school. Well, <laughs> I was a safe deposit clerk for a couple of months, and then an opening uh, came up that for uh, a management trainee position uh, that would pay a bit more money. And so I took that management trainee position, and I, um, after a short time, uh, became a, a installment credit lender. I was just sort of a young guy loaning money to people that wanted cars. And... Um, so one of my clients who came into the bank was a, uh, should I say, a exotic dancer. And she, okay. wanted, a, she wanted a new Mustang. And um, after a considerable interview, uh, I lent her the money for the Mustang. I should say I lent her the bank's money for the Mustang, uh, which she <laughs> never paid back. Oh, okay. Well, that car got repossessed and I got reprimanded. Uh, my banking career was about to come to an end, and so I began looking for another place in the bank where maybe I could sort of hide out and live down this this uh, history of not being a terribly good loan officer. 
And so I was transferred to the investment department. And there I was responsible for basically just keeping the bank's balances with other banks in order. It was kind of a dull job. And so um, I became more involved then in selling treasury securities to the state of Washington and other entities. And then I thought, boy, it'd be more fun if I if I could buy those securities at one price and then sell them to the state for another price um, and sort of play the market, do a little trading. So mm -hmm. I began I began trading treasury securities for the bank and trading money for the bank, trading federal funds deposits, deposits with the Federal Reserve Bank, with other banks. And okay. one thing led to one thing led to another, and that soon I say soon. After a couple of years, this was uh, 1972. Um, uh, that became the most profitable area of Seattle First National Bank, and so my career all of a sudden started moving up in the bank. And I've before long had responsibility. But by the time I was 30, I was a vice president of the bank and. I had responsibility for global money trading and securities trading and so forth and so on. And um, so this is starting to enter the period where I'm beginning to think about um, going to the Arctic. Um, from that point, the job opening for the head of the investment division, and I didn't get that job. And so a short time later, I went to New York to try to extend my uh, career in uh, investment banking and um, securities. And I, I developed a program, an early computer model, that would model a bank and all of its portfolios so that banks that were having trouble could look at all their portfolios and do what-if scenarios. What if we sold this portfolio and we reinvested in this? What if we um, uh, traded such and such a security for another one? What about uh, loan portfolios? What if we cut back some on the installment loan portfolio and made more home loans? That, that type of thing. And so it would analyze bank balance sheets. That all led to a job in, the, in 1980. This is after the first Arctic expedition, after the first and second, actually, first, second, and third Arctic expedition, led to a job for the my first job as a turnaround specialist for a major bank in California. And so I came in and applied the program and worked for that bank for four years. And at the point that I left that bank, and we turned that bank around. And so I was sort of an accidental banker. I never intended to be a banker. I never had any training in banking, um, but I had a scientific background and I had the ability to analyze and assess a problem and even more importantly, to propose a solution and to test a solution. And that's one of the, yep. And, I, and that was one of the things I thought was always missing from basically from, uh, oh, MBA programs or some of the others that, uh, you know, they train you to be very good at analyzing and assessing and telling somebody what the problem is, but not so good at what the answer is. And science, on the other hand, as you well know, 
um, assessing and analyzing the problem is only one part of it. There, you, it's the quest for the solution that's the important part, and the testing right. of that solution. So that mm. was that was how there was an interplay between the, our, our search for Franklin relics and basically for our expeditions. There's sort of this interplay between here's a problem, here's a solution. The same thing applied to all of the mountain rescue activity that we're involved in. Here's a problem. We've got someone with a broken back at, on a ledge, you know, 2,000 feet above the floor of a canyon someplace. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some, that is a very serious problem. So there's a very serious, difficult solution to that problem, but we had to find it and we had to execute it and it had to be correct. So again, this theme, this, this theme of my love of being close to the edge comes into play. And it was something that I just thrive on. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, you, you've helped uh, open my eyes to how the, the crossover happens there. And, you know, in terms of identifying the problem, but working towards a solution, because so many people who want to conduct expeditions, you know, they, they can find the problem. They can find what they think that being out on the land would, would accomplish for them, but they don't know how to execute it. Also find the solution. So uh, that's interesting. Good. Well, um, now then, how that segues into uh, the Franklin expedition and the research for that. At the time sure. that I, at the time that we were trying to put together our plan for finding the summer campsite, um, as you said, there was no Google back then. There was no internet. Oh, let's look up all the data of all the, you know thousand people that have been to the north end of Ireland, what have they done? And I could do that in an afternoon and print it all out and then pour over it. What you had back then was the so-called Arctic Blue Books. So you had Arctic Blue Books, which were the parliamentary inquiries for all of the Franklin search expeditions. And I would highly recommend to anybody who's a Franklin file to find the Arctic Blue Books and sort through them. They're first-hand accounts of every expedition that went up searching for Franklin and the parliamentary inquiries that took place during that time. They were the primary source for Syriac's famous book from the early 1950s about Franklin, which still to this day remains, if not 100% accurate, at least a very good solid starting point for the history behind the Franklin expedition and, and the search expeditions. So the Arctic Blue Books, which I had uh, secured a copy of, and um, also I started a first uh, edition Arctic library. I now have about uh, 500 volumes of first editions that range from McKinsey um, uh, all through um, uh, all the Franklin search expeditions uh, in their entirety, and I poured through those first-hand accounts that I could find, and on the sections relevant to um, the north end of King William Island, um, I, obviously I set those aside, and I took all of that as input and made handmade spreadsheets of who was where, when, where they walked, any kind of description that they gave, and so forth. And then I applied that to a 
a detailed topographic map of the north end of King William Island. And started. We did, something, we did something similar with the probability um, yeah. uh, calculation that we built out in a similar model. Who went where? How much did we trust uh, of what they said and what they covered? And then um, applied a probability to it. I, I found that fascinating that uh, similar strategies uh, were being employed. Uh, yep. Very interesting. Yep, just the same. And and so uh, when we flew up there in um, uh, 1989 and, and early July of 1989, uh, we set up our camp and the next morning, within 20 minutes, we walked to the summer camp. It was no more than 20 minutes. And we'd found the summer camp and we thought, boy, oh boy, that was too easy. <laughs> and, and obviously so it was. What, we were just, we were incredibly that, lucky. Well, luck, well, you know what they say, luck is um, when opportunity meets preparation. And certainly you guys had uh, had done the research and prepared yourselves uh, to be lucky once you got up there. But what, what tipped you off that it was the summer camp? Well, what tipped us off was uh, not only the the location and where we calculated that it ought to be, and so we knew we would be relatively close, but also the remains of the old Karen that marked the site that Schwatka noted and Robeson noted. Um, uh, both of those expeditions had had noted the uh, the Karen and the tent ring, the initial remains of a tent ring. Um, that were there, and so um, it was pretty evident that that was the uh, the summer campsite. The uh, there were no uh, good relics remaining. There were no really not much of anything but those uh, sort of rock remains that you can find there now that we saw. Uh, we didn't, you know, dig around there and so forth and try to find things. We weren't that type of an expedition so um, right. but, but anyway and I think uh, later people have visited it and I think that as far as I know later people concur that that was the summer campsite well we visited it this past summer and we found your note in there as well so that was uh, quite interesting in the uh, in the small Karen um, yeah yeah that was it took us more than 20 minutes to find it but that was the the first uh, target that um, we had applied for with our permit to go and uh, look for, and we we got dropped uh, on the tundra uh, in the in our charter plane. Literally dropped our um, all of our duffel bags, grabbed our day packs. You know, it was probably five in the afternoon at that point, and just started walking north. And uh, yeah, we found it after maybe two hours of walking. So oh, great. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. Yeah, <laughs> and the note's still in good shape in its plastic bag. Yeah, good. Oh, that's nice. Uh, and then I presume you also walked up to Cape Felix and and to the east of Cape Felix, where we thought we may have found the where um, James Clark Ross. Uh, James, uh, yeah, James Clark Ross, the younger Ross, came across to King William Island, went down to Victory Point. Right. Um. Uh, anyway, um, we thought, and he talks about camping at the very north end of King William Island. And there there was a tent ring there, whether it's his or whether it's at Inuit is, you know, who knows for sure. But um, at any rate, there was also there's also that up there. And 
uh, on other expeditions, one in 1993, I believe it was, or 95, 93, uh, Bill Dougal and I, who was, Bill was on the original 77 expedition, uh, we walked all the way from the Franklin uh, summer campsite around the north end of King William and down the entire east coast of the King William Island to Joa Haven. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. That's huge. We, yeah. So I think we probably together have walked about as much of King William Island probably as most anybody. I don't know. Maybe someone's walked all the way around. Um, but we've walked, gee, I don't know, two-thirds yeah, of the way around. Not anyway. anywhere else. Not not so, that's uh, not of Inuit descent. Yeah, and uh, there are a lot of sites, and really impossible to tell, and um, uh, you know whether they're uh, uh, any of the Franklin sites or not. We've also uh, went out to the Clarence Islands, and we okay. walked walked across there, and we found. Um, some sites of some of the uh, 1940s, 1950s um, search stuff, Larson and some of that, of that era. Um, okay. Over there, that was kind of interesting. And we did that because originally, as you recall, some people thought that, you know, the Erebus or the Terror might be over with the Clarence Islands and so forth and so on. And, and um, anyway, so we, we thought we'd hop over there and see if we could see anything. And so we walked across the ice from Cape Felix across and, and looked around and then came back. Um, so we've been a, a number of places on King William that were sort of fascinating. One aside, and I think that this deserves more thought, and I haven't seen really very many people write about this, if anybody, and I think I, I try to in my book. Um, Franklin's group may had this summer camp, and we know that, and we know that it was occupied, and we know that they were uh, an ex exploration, uh, obviously, exploration group. Um, so there must be or certainly they must have sent a group down the east side of King William Island at least some distance, as well as the west side of King William Island. Because as you recall, the, there was a, uh, at that time, it was thought that King William Island was King, King William Land, and, and my, right. recollec my recollection was it was supposed to be connected. And so I'm pretty sure that the Franklin Expedition probably did a lot of searching over the course of two years, you know, less so in the last year, but certainly in that first year, they would have been probably pretty gung-ho to explore as much of that area as they possibly could have. So the idea that that one or more groups went south and eventually went to um, Simpson's Cairn, um, I think is a very high probability and very high likelihood that that may be one of the reasons that the terror was found in Terror Bay. Um, because how did the terror get there? Uh, certainly, yeah, it seems very unlikely that it would have uh, drifted to where it actually is today. Right, and Terror Bay is not necessarily a place that you would turn to the east around King William Island and go into Terror Bay. In Terror Bay is not necessarily that natural a place to go in and moor the boat, uh, if you will, moor it or try to wait things out. Um, right. 
And it's much more likely that if you're going south, you would have gone further south and then gone west. Either that or you were looking for other members of the of your own expedition to try to pick them up or not. Um, I, I just I don't know for certain. I'm just saying if there were two or three reasons why the terror was found at Terror Bay, that that's an interesting problem. And one of them may have been that they knew about Terror Bay. Another one may have been that they were just following along the coastline trying to find other members of the expedition. Um, and the last one I think is the least likely is that they were driven into Terror Bay. And I'm not quite sure how they would have been driven into Terror Bay myself. Um, right. So there's a question for somebody else. But getting back to Franklin, I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that they would have walked the remaining 75 miles from where they were trapped in the ice down to Simpson's Cairn. Certainly not unreasonable. I mean, uh, and during the summer, because you must have walked. I know when we were up there in 89, we walked from, uh, uh, we walked all the way down to uh, Chancery Inlet uh, in one day, one long day. So it's, it's a long day. Uh, okay. And back again in 23 hours. Uh, and so to think that they might take a week to walk 75 miles uh, during the summer, I think is entirely plausible. Anyhow, that's just a thought. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a good thought. And uh, so when we were up there, uh, we, we started near uh, Cape Felix, uh, near the, the point, and uh, ultimately trekked to Terra Bay over the ensuing 10 days, uh, mm -hmm. did about 250 odd kilometers or so, um, and more or less stayed a uh, kilometer or more inland at all times. Uh, it was yeah. only down Erebus Bay and uh, a little bit, um, a little bit no north of Ross's Karen and, uh, and the Irving Grave area that we were down on the, the coastline. But, um, you know, they, again, that was the probability uh, map. Everything along the coastline had been walked. So why would we walk there? Um, good, we wanted to see what it was. Yeah, I can, and, I'll tell you what. I congratulate you because in 89, when we went down to visit Irving's grave, we sent one group down the coast. And I and my partner walked down. There's sort of that central corridor that goes down yeah. south about, a, about as you say, about a kilometer inland. And it's almost like you go through this sort of shallow, rocky pass on the way yes. south toward Irving's grave. And we walked through that shallow, rocky pass. And I was looking to see if there was any possibility of that so-called vault, you know, that was found, supposedly. Yes. And mm -hmm. that was kind of what I was on the lookout for I didn't see anything, but I, we sure looked there. Well, so I like, and that was on our mind too, right? You, yeah. you got to build a vault where there's uh, where there's the proper uh, geology for it. Um, so yeah, it was fascinating. But uh, one of the things that we noticed was between uh, Erebus and Terra Bay, uh, there's a, there's a point and an inlet which forms a deep estuary. Um, but there's a geologic feature. It's a low, a topographic low that ex extends all the way through. So instead of going all the way around Cape Graham Gore Peninsula, uh, we mm -hmm. took that shortcut 
And uh, it, it was interesting because we found a number of Karens along it. We found a number of tent rings, including some that looked European. So I think that'd be an area that would warrant um, further exploration. But I'm, I'm very interested to hear about what you guys found when you walked down the east side of the island. Uh, how did you uh, supply it, uh, first of all? Because, I mean, we were pulling very heavy, um, uh, they're called mono walkers. They have a single wheel and a deck and they harness onto your waist and shoulders and uh, you just pull them along. Uh, it's not easy. As, as you're well aware, towing things. And there, there's quite a bit of topography uh, along that east coast that you don't necessarily see on the, the western side. Right. Well, when we, when we went down the east side, uh, Bill and I just backpacked it. We just backpacked it and camped out for, I can't recall now, it seemed to me it was eight or ten days, something like that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of endless, I'm sure you saw this, it was really fun because it got to be an interesting uh, navigational problem, finding your way through the maze of of a million little lakes, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and marshes, and a number of times of stepping up to your your knees or your thigh in some sort of marshy little terrain and stuff. And so we tried to stay as much as we can right on the beach. Um, obviously, but sometimes you had to cut corners or either right. that or go way out around something. And so uh, what we found is basically the same thing. We found not a lot of Karens, not 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 enough that we would say that they were anything more than, say, Inuit cash Karens or something like that. We, we didn't find anything that we could say definitively was European. Uh, about, okay. the, about, about the best that we found, we did find some tent cloth uh, up around uh, Cape Felix. The same, okay. you, you know, if you've been into the Joe Haven little museum, they have some yep. tent tent cloth from Ross's expedition okay. in there on, on, dis, on display. And I think they may have attributed some of it to the summer camp as well. I'm not quite sure now. But... Um, I've got a bunch of that we found, and, cool. uh, and and a bunch of it that, and I've marked each place where it was found. A lot of it, a lot, of, and that was kind of why I thought maybe we found either another camp of Franklin's or perhaps uh, Ross's camp, James Ross's camp, um, uh, at at Cape at Cape Felix, maybe. But no real proof, just that cloth. Um, so there was some European old campsite there. Well, I mean, it's it's amazing what you can still find up there um, if you've if you've got your eyes open. Well, we're we're nearing the end of our time here, and it's been just absolutely fascinating. I can go on for another two three hours with you. Maybe we'll have to do this again sometime. But one oh, of the I things can, I can do that standing on my head. That's easy. I can go on and on and on. I'm I'm prepared. I'm ready to go here. Okay. <laughs> never never mind. We'll talk again. We'll have to. But I always I always like to ask my guests um you know what their what their mantra is because I find you also inspirational and uh the stuff you've done is just this incredible and motivating. And you know, what's what's a mantra that drives you forward? Uh if you're not moving, you're standing still. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's always been my mantra, and and I, you know, 
it was just it's one that has stuck with me and i've tried to keep after it and i'm still doing it today i, I hope to keep doing it for another 50 years i realized yeah. just 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 last week that i'd been a member of mountain rescue for 51 years and i thought whoa <laughs> well, that's, that's an impressive <laughs> contribution i mean you're giving back uh to the community and that's that's the that's commendable well, it was, it's been an interesting time and one well worth it. So um, anytime you'd like to chat again, I'd love to talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the lead poisoning issues and some of the research that's been done there. I got that article by Trina uh, Swanston that I thought was interesting. Right, the recent um, one. Yes. And I don't know whether you did you, have you been able to look up my article from information north back in november of 89 uh i believe we had it uh, on the expedition uh, i think ollie okay. printed it out and uh i would oh. have reviewed it either just before or while we were up in joe haven right because one of my big one of the big things that kind of spurred me on more about the franklin expedition was all of a sudden the the frozen in time book and the the idea well, that, they, I, you know, everybody died of lead poisoning and or not. I shouldn't say everybody that lead poisoning would played a pivotal role in the demise of the expedition. And just my experience pulling the sled around King William Island in 1977 just led me to believe that that was not so. And I wrote that article for Information North and outlined my reasons for thinking that because we'd done it. And. And I had followed that along, and and um, so I was happy to see that Tina, uh, Trina Swanston had actually done some of that contemporaneous study and had basically reached the same conclusion we had. I might point out that there was, and I don't know if you've seen this fellow's article. I'll try to send it to you if you haven't. But there's a fellow by the name of Frar or Frere, who's a food scientist in England, hmm. and back back in late '89. Uh, and in 90-ish, he also said that he um, didn't like the the, po the lead poisoning theory just because of the time that it would take for lead to leach out to any kind of concentration levels just didn't fit. He said it didn't, doesn't make any sense from a food science point of view. And he right. Was, and for the, the listeners who might not be familiar, the theory was that uh, rapidly canned meat from a new supplier to the uh, the British Navy uh, had used lead solder and that lead, uh, well, the cans were improperly soldered and that ended up leaching into the food and that there was uh, some thought of botulism as well, right? I don't, yes, that, that's basically correct. It's primarily focused on, on lead. Um, and I do covered not only in that information north article but also in my in my book at the edge i do have uh significant chapters on king william island and and i and i outline a lot of this um lead poisoning theory and and a lot of the location of campsites and cairns and stuff so for franklin files there may be some something of value there for them to peruse well, that's fantastic. And yeah, your book is called At the Edge. And where can uh, our listeners uh, track that down? 
listeners can find the book on Amazon. Um, and basically, you just look up Stephen with a PH, uh, Trafton, and it'll come up at the edge. And um, I think for people that are, for young people, I, I wrote the book to be inspirational. I wanted to inspire them to go out and to try to achieve and do more than they think they could do. And for old folks uh, uh, like me, they're just good stories. They're good Arctic stories and good mountaineering stories. Well, yes, they, they sure are. Uh, I, I still have to read the book, but Ollie, uh, he's read it and he's memorized uh, the chapters. He, he has some specific questions for me to ask you offline. So, <laughs> but we, uh, hey, I'm very grateful that you're able to make some time today. Uh, it was fantastic uh, chatting with you, Steve, and uh, I certainly hope we can do it again uh, in the near future. Very good. Thank you, Simon. Well, everyone, uh, thanks again for listening to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. Uh, We'd like to thank Steve Trafton for joining us today, and we'd like to thank our sponsors who helped make this possible, Merrill, Farm to Feet, and Stoked Oats. Well, we've got plenty of podcasts uh, now online, so if if this is your first, dig into it. We've got lots more, and uh, we're just getting into it for uh, winter 2018 and 2019, so Stay tuned for uh, more episodes coming up. Thanks again.